The Earth's climate is an extremely complex thing. When you talk about climate change and climatic issues, we can never ever make a, a prediction about the future. We can simply make a prediction about a range of probabilities. This is Dr. Anthony Turton. And even so, there are some things he knows for sure. 2002, South Africa became a water-constrained economy. And in, 20, in 2013, around about then, South Africa became a capital-constrained economy. So we're now both water and capital-constrained economy, and therefore we are unable to create jobs unless we overcome our water and capital constraints. And as subsequent to that, with climate change having kicked in and global warming having kicked in, our rainfall has gone down from the original number that it was 53 billion cubic meters per annum. As we done, it was revised down to about 51 and then to 48. So we are getting less and less rainfall. He has unique insights on how we might overcome some of our biggest environmental and economic challenges. Climate oscillates between a number of, let's call them upper and lower parameters. And of course, from a human perspective, this is important because human bio- biological life can only exist where the brain uh, is kept at around about 38 degrees. 36 to 38 degrees, the brain is unable to go anything above that. If the brain starts going above that, that temperature, then, of course, it starts shutting down. So human evolution has evolved to a point where we've optimized brain functioning at a threshold that's very close to the survival survivability of the, of the brain. And that's why any changes to temperature, particularly on the upper limits of, of the range, have got potentially catastrophic implications for human life as we know it on the planet. This podcast is brought to you by Jojo, a proud supporter of South Africa's water activists and a proud supplier of water solutions for a better quality of life. By protecting our most precious resource, Jojo's quality products help to safeguard the well-being of people, communities and the environment. Please enjoy today's episode, a celebration of all things water and the people working tirelessly to protect it. You're listening to For Water For Life, the podcast that tells extraordinary stories of ordinary people and water. They've made it their mission to preserve, purify and protect the water supply where we live in a water-scarce and unequal country called South Africa. I'm Guguletum Shongo. I'm Michelle Constant. Welcome. So Dr. Anthony Turton is a professor at the Centre for Environmental Management at the University of Free State in South Africa. And Anthony is involved in the development of cutting-edge technologies and their rollout with a focus on solving our water issues. He lives and works next to the Umfolozi River in KwaZulu-Natal province. He spent years studying the Orange Senku River, one of South Africa's most mighty water bodies. His passion for our rivers has forged his career as a change agent and scientist specializing in water resource management. I happen to live in a time when we've reached the end of, 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 of a period of extraordinary economic activity uh, driven by human ingenuity, mostly by bad dam building. We've reached the end of that era now. We now have to we transition into a new era. So 
my role is to be the voice and the, to be the, the sort of the guiding light, if you like, or at least the, the person that is capable of communicating the need for change. That's my role. And uh, I work with technical teams. I work with engineers and mathematicians and scientists, etc., to develop these new ideas. But before Anthony moves us into the future, let's go back in time. When we talk about climate, what does that actually mean? Climate is an aggregation of all of your, your weather patterns over a period of time. So weather, has, uh, weather is what we feel on our bodies right here and right now. So it's an immediate short-term thing. Climate is a long-term trend. And the long-term trend has shown uh, as far as back as we can, we can go with the recorded history of, 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 uh, of evolution is that we've seen a lot of climatic swings in the past. So the climate is not a steady-state thing. So what has this got to do with rivers? Every single city in the world is either on a river or on a lake or on the ocean. You don't get cities anywhere in the world that are not on a river, not on a lake and not on a waterfront, except in South Africa. In South Africa and Zimbabwe, these are the two places where Harare is not on a river or a lake. In fact, also in Namibia, Vintuk is also not on a river and a lake. And South Africa, Johannesburg and Pretoria are not on a river or a lake. So then how did people manage to create a settlement like Johannesburg in a water-scarce area like the Witwatersrand, a vast ridge of rock that holds the world's largest known gold reserves? When gold was discovered in the Witwatersrand, there was no water there, there was no means of developing that economic activity, so we had to take water from the nearest river, pump it uphill uh, in order to generate the economic activity around the gold fields. Now, what this has meant is that in South Africa, we've got this massive urban population that lives in a conurbation. Every single day, we pump water uphill from the, either from the Lesotho Highlands or from the Tugela River in KZN or from other places. It's pumped uphill with electricity. Huge, huge electric, uh, electricity consumption is used to pump the water up into Johannesburg, into Pretoria, into Rustenburg, all the way from Germiston, all the way to Brandfontein. It's all supplied from the Vaal River system. What people don't realize now is the water coming into their house uh, comes from the Vaal River. Winding past Namibia and Lesotho, yawning through mountains and valleys, South Africa's longest river, the Orange, travels 1,200 kilometers from its source to meet the Vaal River. From there, it travels through complex transfer schemes to taps in Johannesburg and the Gauteng province and uses electricity, which needs water, to produce in the first place. If we look at South Africa as a geographic entity, two-thirds of the country, uh, about 65, 66% of the, of the geographic area of South Africa, is found in transboundary river basins. A transboundary river basin is a basin that is shared with, between two or more countries. And of those river basins, the Orange is undoubtedly the largest. Uh, the Orange River Basin, from a strategic perspective, sustains something like 40% of the population in South Africa and about 60% of the economic activity of the country. So it's of great strategic importance to us as a nation. But there's an ecological perspective to the Orange River.
What makes the Orange River such an extraordinarily interesting place is the fact that it starts off in the highlands of Lesotho, uh, which is an alpine area, very, very uh, stark, very, very un, un, unpopulated by people and, and, and vegetation. And uh, it then flows through an increasingly desertified uh, space, the high felt, uh, the South African high felt, which is an extension of the uh, Kalahari. And eventually it flows uh, through the, the actual Kalahari itself into the Nama Desert. So the last hundreds of kilometers of, uh, of the river that becomes nothing more than a linear oasis in a desert, in an extremely hostile desert environment. Where it discharges the water into the ocean, of course, it's on the Namibian, the Namibian border. And uh, you've got a lot of activities there, one of them being diamond mining. But then who exactly owns the water? Well, no country owns the river because water flows, and as water flows through different countries, uh, each country has got the right to utilise that water for its economic development, but it's also got certain legal obligations not to cause harm to other users. So its rights are balanced with obligations, and that becomes the driving force, if you like, for negotiations. And those negotiations are ultimately what water sharing is about, which country gets what, what portion of the flow. So then how does South Africa get the right to pump so much water from a shared river? In that regard, South Africa gets the majority of the flow, but South Africa does give uh, some of that water to, to Namibia in a, in a thing called the, the Fjordruf and Noord-Uver Joint Irrigation Scheme, where, whereby water is taken out of the river uh, and, and passed onto Namibia for their use along that part of the river. We've manipulated this river's flow with artificial structures in order to reap its benefits as a vital source of potable water, irrigation and hydroelectric power in order to achieve economic growth. But interfering with nature comes with serious consequences. Uh, we have built dams in the Orange River that trap about 270% of the flow. So we've built storage capacity three times greater than the annual average flow. And that, of course, from a climate change perspective, is extremely important. And as we build more dams, so uh, we're simply losing more and more water to evaporation, which means that we're starting to build up the levels of salt in the river. Salty and evaporating rivers, that sounds like the opposite of the sweet drinking water that comes from our taps. What is the impact of salt in our rivers? Uh, so the so the Orange River becomes increasingly saline as it goes through South Africa, and by the time it gets to Namibia, it's uh, it's already a highly saline uh, river, and uh, in fact almost uh, incapable of supporting agricultural activities at that point in time without some kind of technical intervention. So that, in a nutshell, is uh, is what it's about. Dams are a foundation of South Africa's national economy. It took 100 years from 1860 to get the first big dams built. But now every single river in the country has been dammed except the Umzumkulu River. And that's, a, that's another story in its own right. The, the dam building era in South Africa has come to an end. And this is, I think, of great importance in the context of climate change. And it's of great importance in the context of, uh, of our future national uh, water security. Because unless we have water security, we cannot create jobs in South Africa. And unless we can create jobs, we cannot hope to have a, have a politically stable future. If this vital infrastructure is now insufficient to ensure water security, what do we do? 
our development challenge uh, in Africa is about our, uh, our conversion of rainfall to runoff. So let me just explain what this means. If you take rain that fall out of the sky, any given area, that that is called rainfall, or it's called precipitation, and it's known as annual precipitation, or annual rainfall, in other words, and that is known as a map, map, M-A-P, mean annual precipitation. In, in the case of um, of Africa, the map to mark conversion is an order of 30 to 40 percent. So of 100 units of rain that fall out of the sky, approximately 30 or six or maybe four, let's call it 40, 40 units end up in the river. We're getting less and less rainfall, so we get less runoff in our rivers, and that's a problem. So this whole thing about the hydraulic foundation of our society, water as an economic enabler, is all embedded in the fact that our conversion from rainfall to runoff is not our friend. This is our enemy. And we have to understand this in a profound way, because if we continue to do business as usual and continue to just rely on dams, the sad truth is the fact that in 2002, we discovered to our great surprise that we'd already allocated 98% of all the water we have available in the country. And in some river basins, we'd allocated to 120%. Which is why it's time to look at the problem in an entirely new way, an even bigger picture. South Africa is a water-constrained economy, but we do not have to be water-constrained because we haven't actually run out of water at planetary level. We've only run out of the 2% of the total volume of water that is fresh water. If we look at all the water on the planet floating in this blue, in the lifeless infinity of outer space, is this one blue planet, the only planet that's two-thirds covered in water. We've not run out of water. We've only run out of the fresh water. And the fresh water is less than 2% of all of the water on planet Earth. Which leaves us with salt water, and with this problem comes an opportunity. So our future is going to increasingly be in the desalination of water, the removal of salt. We don't have a water problem, we have a salt problem. And once we think about that, what that means, we now have to increasingly start thinking about how to remove salt from our water in an, in an economically viable way that renders everything safe without causing additional harm. And if you look at the Orange River, the Orange River is becoming increasingly saline. And if you look at the Vaal River, which is the single most important river for the Gauteng area, the Vaal River uh, has had a, a very sophisticated study done called, called the Vaal River Salinity Study. And the Vaal River Salinity Study has found without any question of doubt that the river is becoming more saline and it's identified the drivers of that salinity as being sewage return flows and acid mine water from the gold mining industry. Those are the two major sources of salinity in, in the, uh, the Vaal River system. But what do we need to do to get things flowing in this new direction? Kevin Winter is a lead researcher at the Future Water Institute at the University of Cape Town. The Institute applies IoT, the Internet of Things, to capture and monitor data about the flow and quality of our water. 
During a period of severe water shortage owing to a prolonged drought across the Western Cape region, the city of Cape Town almost reached a tipping point. Point day zero, the day when the city's taps would run dry and a daily water quota would be imposed. During the day zero, we saw that the city put in three temporary desalination plants and it made a lot of sense to experiment during a crisis. They were never really going to deliver large volumes of water that the city needs. But to adapt in a crisis and to provide some cushioning made the desalination plants smart interventions. It makes sense for coastal cities to explore the possibility and potential to use desalination. And there are plenty others along the coastline like Mossel Bay and Sedgefield and others that are using uh, desalination plants to supplement their water supply. Makes a lot of sense. What is happening to the desalination technology is that it is improving uh, with the years. We're starting to see better technologies, better ways in which they are using less energy, for instance, uh, ways in which the brine, the salts that come out of the desalination process don't become pollutants and better use of the resources that could be used in desalination. We all need to become wiser about our water use. It's ironic, for instance, that Cape Town has high quality water, some of the best water in the world, in fact, because it comes from our dams that are sitting in nature reserves in mountainous areas and have very little disturbance from human activity in and around the dam. That high quality water is put on everything in the city. We wash our bodies, we wash our cars, we fill our swimming pools, we clean, whatever it might be. Those are, that's high quality water at very expensive water too. That's been used for multiple purposes here. I think what's important is that coastal cities are able to use uh, seawater and use seawater of a quality that can be drawn into and blended maybe into a drinking water system, uh, but maybe even more so using that water for other purposes. As we will discover in another episode, IoT can help by monitoring the water process. As the technology in desalination improves, so the instrumentation, the sensors, the, that which is helping us to get real-time understanding of the flow of water coming through that, the particles, the pollution that's in that water, are all going to be very helpful as dashboards, as indicators uh, of how to manage that water better. And there's no doubt that technology and desalination will find a very happy home and will be very comfortable in the way in which we manage it in the future. Anthony believes we should also look further afield for working examples that might help. And in the Middle East days, there's now a complete new paradigm shift coming about where they're no longer looking at desalinating seawater as being the main objective to generate drinking water or potable water for the economy. What they're starting to shift on now is not the production of potable water, but they're starting to shift their focus onto the concentration of salts as an economic activity. So in other words, the salts that you find in, the, in, in seawater have all got economic value and they're starting to mine that brine stream. They're starting to mine the salts coming out of the, the ocean. So and that now starts creating water, potable water, as a byproduct. So the main activity is not about generating potable water. The main activity is increasingly becoming how do we mine the brine stream? And once we do that now, we produce potable water as a byproduct. So salt mining makes the cost of producing drinking water the same or even cheaper than turning dam water into drinking water. This is the epicenter of innovation where your circular economies are now starting to emerge from the old linear extractive economies. But with that comes a warning. 
unless we start getting our policy ducks in a row and unless government starts catching a wake-up call and starting starts to incentivize the investment of capital and technology into desalination of, uh, of, of water in South Africa, I'm afraid we do not have a very good future in this country. But if we do decide that we are going to uh, start investing into desalination technologies, then we have an extremely prosperous future in South Africa. Anthony is a true water warrior, a man on a mission to change how we do things. My message to South Africa is simple. Water is an economic enabler. We've got an abundance of salt, not a shortage of water. And we need to incentivize the investment of at least one trillion South African rand just to revive the water sector, just to fix up what is broken in the water sector. But if we take that one trillion rand and apply it to, with ne- to next generation technology, we can start multiplying that one trillion rand by at least five times, what's known in engineering terms as a multiplier. If we manage that money correctly, we don't steal it, we invest it properly, we create jobs with it, we can multiply that at least five times. So we can have effectively five trillion rand floating around South Africa as a part of an economic regeneration, as a part of job creation away from the linear extractive economy to a new circular beneficiation economy. This is the message that I'd like to give today. And this, says Anthony, is entirely within South Africa's reach. So if we now have a situation in South Africa where we've run out of our dam space, we've run out of the water in our freshwater systems, we've reached the limit of our supply in the big basins like the orange, etc. And we know today that we've got one of the highest levels of unemployment in the world, and that is unsustainable. So unless we make this policy shift, and it's a policy issue, this is a government policy issue, they have to make the decision that how to incentivize capital and technology to come into the water sector space, to move away from the traditional model of uh, producing potable water out of dams and we've got to start looking at investing now into generating water out of our wastewater treatment works. We've got 824 wastewater treatment works in the country. They can all be recapitalised and turned into water recovery plants. Some of that pioneering work is already being done at the Durban South Wastewater Treatment Works, the first sewage works in South Africa to be converted into a water recovery plant. And the water that's recovered from that wastewater works and has been for the last almost 20 years, that water is the water that produces your photocopy paper today because it goes into a paper mill right next door to the treatment plant and it goes to uh, the Sapref oil refinery where industrial process water is generated from the wastewater. So this is what we're going to have to do in our future. And if we do that, then we're going to have an extremely bright, uh, bright future with full employment and lots of happy faces around. A bright future requires us to look at water differently. It requires our imagination. Water is always seen as a bridge between the spirit and the physical realm. 60% of our body is made out of water. 70% of the earth is made out of water. So there is an inclination and an innate knowing that water is life and there is life in water. Water comes from the fusion of hydrogen and oxygen, which are the two of the most basic elements on the periodic table. They came about right at the start of the Big Bang when, uh, when all the elements were being created. Water is life. Water cleanses. Water purifies. It heals. And I'll ask the water that it may continue to be 
who she is, what it is, and allow for me to copy her and her greatness. And just to say thank you to her. Our next episode will take you on a cosmic and maybe even slightly chaotic journey of water on planet Earth. It's a grand history of the universe with the aim of sparking our imaginations. I'm Michelle Constant. And I'm Guguletum Shungo. Thank you for listening. All our podcasts are available at jojo.co.za. The series was made possible because of Jojo for Water for Life. Find us on social media at For Water for Life and share your water stories using the hashtag Listen to the Water. Because if you do, it could change your life. From the Jojo family to yours, we hope you enjoyed this episode of For Water for Life. Whether you're looking for top quality storage tanks, water filters, or other water solutions, Jojo has the product ideal for you. Discover our range at jojo.co.za and find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram for all the latest product news and water-related content. <laughs>